Hi, everyone. This is Tom Salami, Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We have a jam-packed episode for you today. Uh, sort of batting cleanup at the end of the podcast, we'll have my interview with Fred Kasravi, the CEO of Imperative Care. This was the conversation I had at Device Talks West. It ended day one. It was a really great conversation. So much wisdom and experience dropped in uh, 35 minutes or so. So very happy to share that with you on the podcast, Imperative Care was a huge part of Device Talks West and uh, very grateful for their support. Before that, I'll speak with Delphine Zerkia. She is a senior partner at McKinsey & Company, and they've recently released a report on the medtech industry. We'll review that. But before we get into both of those conversations, I'd like to bring in my colleagues, Kayleen Brown, our managing editor, and Brian Bunce, our pharma editor. Welcome, both of you, to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Tom. So you have some big news. You're 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 brought, you delivered an addition to the Device Talks podcast family. Could you introduce our listeners to AI Meets LifeSci the podcast? Absolutely, we'd be very happy to. So just late last night on Device Talks, we launched AI Meets LifeSci. Uh, just based off of the name alone, this series is meant to really uncover how artificial intelligence and machine learning is being integrated into the life sciences. So it is a little collaboration between us and the device talk side, so with a medtech focus, and then a collaboration with Brian and the pharma side, so drug discovery and development. Um, and then we are also are extending the reach to kind of the tech giants, Microsoft's, um, Amazon. NVIDIA, and more. And the idea behind this series is really to understand how the companies within life sciences are using artificial intelligence to move health forward for better health outcomes. And have you been happy with the response so far? The success of our launch has definitely been far beyond my most hopeful optimism <laughs> um, we have had uh, more than 900 plays and it's not even been 24 hours which feels just really validating and i know i'm speaking for brian here when i say that we had this hunch tom that there would be an appetite in the life sciences for uh, content around artificial intelligence and case studies and real world applications and collaborations, you know, not just talking about the marketing part or the hype of it, but really how it's being used and arguably how it's been used for years. And now maybe just finally getting awareness and the success of our launch in the last 24 hours has really affirmed that. I think for me and definitely for Brian as well, there's an appetite out there. And Brian, I know you've been an early uh, evangelist for AI, at least on the uh, on the device talks in WTWH Media Slack channel, but you're, you've really been sort of advancing our understanding of, of AI and how it can be used for editorial purposes. What are you seeing out there in, in the life sciences and what sort of uh, stories have, be, have you been uh, uncovering? I'm seeing some interesting partnerships with big tech companies like Microsoft Azure and like NVIDIA. Like interestingly, like NVIDIA was a big, still is a big GPU company, but now they're also developing tools for drug discovery. So like that probably wouldn't have been the case just a handful of years ago. But um, I think one of the coolest things for this podcast is like the the caliber of guests that we have. We already have like Microsoft Azure. We're working with more like big tech companies potentially down the road. We have GE Healthcare, Medtronic lined up, Sanofi, 
And then other big pharma, big tech, Medtronic, sorry, <laughs> and med tech companies kind of in the works. So looking forward to covering this kind of nexus between big tech and med tech and biotech and pharma. That's great. And Kayleen or Brian, what is the structure of, of the podcast? You're gonna, what will they be and how will they be presented? Because you're doing more than just uh, just audio. Yeah, so we have broken into the world of video. Mm-hmm. Podcasts have been yeah, a wonderful place and home for device talks and for device talkers. And we're going to continue to stream uh, through all the major podcast channels. So your Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify will still be there. But we wanted to move into video and offer more ways to consume the content, uh, bite-sized pieces, build uh, clips of the video podcast so it can be more shareable on social media, pull out key sort of how-tos or interesting quotes or interesting moments. It was just more of a way of making our content have a further reach, breadth and depth to it. Uh, so that's kind of the visual audio aspect of it. But it's actually interesting your question made me think about how the episodes are structured. So to talk about that a little bit, we originally, Brent and I decided that we were going to have one big interview, kind of your typical podcast structure. And in starting to move forward and reaching out to us, uh, Brian mentioned these big companies, these big medtechs, big pharmas, uh, big tech companies. We realized that we weren't getting any no's. <laughs> it was just, yes, we want to be involved. Can That's we do great. it in December? Yes. We, yeah, it's been overwhelming, actually, the... Um, the support we've received with the entire life sciences and tech companies. We did not expect it, Tom. It's been wonderful. But that actually put us in a good problem situation where we realized we needed to have two interviews in each episode, that we just couldn't have one episode uh, per episode. There were just too many great conversations to have. So uh, each episode features two different conversations, two different perspectives, but with the same goal, you know, really talking through how each of these organizations or collaborations are working with artificial intelligence, working with machine learning uh, to apply it to their technologies, their um, the drug they're discovering, clinical trials, so on and so forth. Uh, so you get kind of double the pleasure with each and every one of our episodes. That's great. And and how can folks uh, find the – where can folks find the podcast? Right now it's on the Device Talks Podcast Network. It went out, as you mentioned, uh, just a day ago. But uh, going forward, uh, where can folks get future episodes once it's sort of kind of left the nest and, and gone out on its own? So season one will still live with Device Talks. It is part of the Device Talks podcast family, so Device Talks podcast network, and it will always live there. Uh, but we have also found a new home for it as well. I mean, it as Brian and I were talking about, I mean, this conversation transcends all of, all the different uh, silos of life sciences, so med tech and pharma and biotech. So it will have its own home. AI Meets LifeSci on YouTube, so you can find us there. You can also find us on all of the major podcast platforms. So again, Apple, Google, Spotify, AI Meets LifeSci. But I do urge you to go to our website, which is uh, devicetalks.com forward slash AI. Once again, that's devicetalks.com forward slash AI. So you can get all of our episodes and choose how you want to consume it, either 
podcast or video podcast. It's the easiest way to get there. And you can also explore the other content that we have with Device Talks. Uh, we have about eight other uh, podcasts under the Device Talks podcast network, and you might find something there that you would really enjoy. So I encourage you to go to devicetalks.com forward slash AI. I think you'll definitely find something there you'll enjoy because it's just a plethora of great content and conversations. So you're exactly right, Tom. There's a ton of great content. You're definitely going to find something that you like at devicetalks.com. But I wanted to reiterate that uh, AI Meets Life Sci will have its own podcast home as well from season two on. So season one is being simulcasted through Device Talks and AI Meets LifeSci. But after season one, you can only find season two and beyond if you subscribe to AI Meets LifeSci. So please make sure to do that before the end of season one. Great. It's an exciting time. Brian, anything uh, you want to share with the Device Talks listeners about this exciting new podcast series? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Kaylee and I are lining up some some really impressive guests at big medtech, um, cloud, big tech, medtech um, companies. And was curious if any listeners have any feedback about types of guests and types of programming they would like to see. We can take that into consideration as we plan out kind of like our season two and beyond. Excellent. All right. Well, I hope folks can, can reach out. They can find, I guess they could reach out to you on LinkedIn and, and where, where would be the best way for folks to get this feedback to you? LinkedIn or email is, is bbunce at wtwhmedia.com for email. And then LinkedIn, I'm at Brian K. Bunce. Excellent. And Kayleen, I'm sure you'll take some feedback as well. Oh, please. We make the content for our audience and our listeners and our viewers. So please, if you have any suggestions, we would love to hear them. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm on X, Kayleen Brown, K-A-Y-L-E-E-N Brown, just like the color. And my email is kbrown at wtwhmedia.com. Fantastic. All right. Well, congratulations to you both. Uh, it's a it's a great listen, crazy informative, and a great addition to the Device Talks podcast network. So great work. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Now let's get this podcast started. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Newmarker isn't here today. He's out sick, but I'm happy to be joined by Delphine Zerkia. She is a senior partner at McKinsey and Company, and she's one of the authors of a report they've released recently called MedTech Pulse, Thriving in the Next Decade, that looks at how MedTech leaders can prepare and maneuver for the next phase of MedTech. Delphine Zerkia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. This is a theme that we're hearing more and more about, just how medtech sort of needs to adapt and needs to, to, to deliver devices differently, need to design devices differently, and also need to engage with customers differently. So I um, was, was happy to, to latch onto this report, and uh, we can explore some of those points today. And it, there's several segments to it, and I recommend folks find it at mckenzie.com. Before we even go there, before we delve into the report, would you uh, give me a little bit of introduction to yourself? Normally, I like to understand how folks kind of have found their way into working in the medtech industry. How did you find yourself sort of writing about the medtech industry and uh, covering the medtech industry and, and leading McKinsey's uh, U.S. medtech practice? 
Yeah, happy to. Uh, so I'm actually a, an engineer and a, and a geek uh, by heart. I'm a software <laughs> engineer by, by training. So that's uh, I've always been extremely excited at the uh, the promise that technology can can bring to to helping patient lives. Uh, and uh, joined McKinsey 17 years ago, and have uh, since then really tried to focus in that intersection of helping technology companies, healthcare technology companies, and medical device companies think about you know how to continuously innovate. And continuously bring those uh, those innovations to uh, to to the bedside of patients. How, how did you make that transition from being an engineer? This, this stereotype is that engineers don't write very much. Uh, you're you're <laughs> writing these reports. What was that transition like? Uh, so it, it, I, so I'm a PhD. So I have to say it was a bit of a of a wake up call to realize you know I didn't have to be that precise when I was uh, when I was writing for, for business. <laughs> Um, but uh, but or, in the end, or, or you know, when I, you're on podcast, so you're you're in good right. company here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but in the end, I think what uh, you know, little story. I left the industry thinking I would come back quickly. Uh, I was frustrated that artificial intelligence was not taking off 20 years ago. So I thought, you know, let me take a two years to when I'll come back, it'll be it'll be fully uh, adopted. So here we are. <laughs> now. Uh, but yeah, no. Ultimately, I'm, the reason I'm still in consulting is um, really, uh, you know, I enjoy uh, looking at the intersection of different concepts. And I think here we're really, in, at least for the industry, it's quite exciting. We're, we're on a cusp of very different types of innovation, bringing in software and artificial intelligence and many other means. But the basics are still there, and understanding the basics uh, is is very important. And you know, ultimately, to, for technology to get adopted. You have to understand the, the value chain, the economic flow, uh, the user needs, and, and that's you know ultimately why why I'm still excited to be helping my uh, my clients do that. That's great. So let's let's uh, delve into the report. As I said, it's called MedTech Pulse: uh, Thriving in the Next Decade. There are several chapters to it that cover different parts of uh, the medtech industry. So I folks, I recommend folks find it and give it a read, but I want to focus on a couple that sort of resonated with me because it's something we've been talking about uh, recently on our podcasts and at our conferences, uh, just sort of how MedTech is changing both from an R&D perspective, but also in a, in a customer engagement uh, perspective. So let's focus first first on R&D. What were some of the high-level takeaways uh, that folks might get from, from the report? You had some informa- interesting information about FDA approvals and, and, the, and the productivity of, of current uh, R&D practices in medtech. Yeah, absolutely. And, and first, you know, we acknowledge in the report uh, how how much this industry is really helping save lives and, and improve lives. Mm-hmm. You know, one, one statistic is, uh, you know, five years of added to, to life expectancy. If we look at all the, the devices, uh, wow. you know, 10% of the population has an implant. I'm sure at this point, probably 100% of the population has interacted with a device if you think of Band-Aid as a, as a device. But it, it is it is a very important industry and it's an industry that's showed up extremely well during COVID, as we all know. And so that's, you know, that's something to, to really acknowledge. It's also an industry that's facing a lot of uh, a lot of pressure, like many others, um, but particularly in, in, in medical device, you know, growth was king up until uh, a few years ago. And I think now we're starting to feel pressure both to grow, but also to uh, to be able to, to grow at a sustainable margins. And so for R&D, to your question, it, it is starting to put some pressure uh, on the R&D organization to look at what is the productivity of R&D. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've looked at the um, uh, the FDA device uh, sort of uh, trend. And, you know, at the heyday in 2011, 196 
um, uh, devices approval per billion of R and D spend. Now in 2022, we're at 74. Oh wow! Uh, and so it's it's there's definitely a, a, a slowdown. And, uh, and, and again, that's putting now pressure for organizations to say, how can we do you know, most with our spend or potentially decrease the spend and still be able to innovate uh, at, at the same rate? Uh, and, and so that's, uh, that's ultimately a lot of what we're discussing in, uh, you know, <laughs> in the boardroom with these R&D leaders. So what can we uh, connect that to, that, that, that decreased product? I guess my first thought was maybe products are just more expensive. So you are spending more money to get a, a, an approval than you might have 10 years ago, or, or is there more to the story than that? That's right. There's uh, definitely a, a very important trend here is that devices are getting smarter. They're getting mm-hmm. smaller, more miniaturized with, you know, minimally invasive surgery. Uh, they're, they're also getting much more complex with uh, the advance of, of robots. Uh, it's no longer predominantly hardware. There's a lot of software. And, and with that comes, you know, a, a lot more a lot more spend. The industry as a whole is spending quite a bit, you know, 8% on average R&D budget versus the automotive industry, which is 4%. So it's, 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 it's already an industry that is spending a lot. And I think mm-hmm. obviously it's becoming the, the bar to be able to get these devices approved is, uh, is, is rising. Uh, and so that, that's uh, driving some of these statistics. So what is the challenge then for some of your clients or are they looking for ways to, to develop devices for less? Are they looking for ways to develop, get their devices approved more quickly? I'm guessing it's both, but what are, what are, uh, what are some of the things that you're, you're helping with and, and some of the information that we folks will find in the report? Yeah, the, both uh, definitely is the is is the answer, and and I think what's interesting is we that was I, I found really surprising is that we we haven't really found a correlation between the amount of spend and uh, the growth of those companies. No, no, no meaningfully statistic, uh, statistical you know difference. However, uh, if you look at underneath uh, the spend, the types of practices there, we found some very meaningful differences in what drives higher growth. Uh, and there's there's five practices that we outlined in the in the report, uh, and and you know many of them are not surprising, but I think it reinforces the importance of making sure these practices are are, are being followed. Um, the first one is portfolio management. This is an industry that's been able to grow, as I mentioned, um, without a lot of pressure, and as a result, there are a lot of devices, a lot of. Uh, devices of multiple versions, and you know this is uh, you know it's not always easy to do uh, to to end a device uh, to do lifecycle management if we know they're being used and liked by healthcare providers. So portfolio really great portfolio management means looking at this uh, on a quarterly basis and saying you know how is it that we can migrate our customers to have the the best devices. Uh, and end of life, some devices, or maybe even realize that maybe some devices are, are no longer needed. And ultimately, it, it translates to reallocating resources where they're, where they're needed uh, and making sure there's the right source of truth. I think often we find it's hard to track exactly who is working on what projects, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and therefore, you, know, you, you need that really great discipline. In terms of the practices, we're also finding that uh, we call them power capabilities. Those are mm-hmm. new types of talents, uh, such as uh, design thinking is becoming increasingly important. Devices are getting more commoditized. So how can you really truly adapt yourself to the way HCPs want to use those devices? Um, and then from the software industry, we see more and more that pro- a really great product management 
is is important and this is sort of the mini ceo of a of a device that really understands the needs drives the r&d the life cycle management but also how it gets commercialized and that role becomes very key um, uh, increasingly and that's also linked to really great performance so what are some of the uh the qualities of of companies that are that are doing things well what are two or three takeaways that that folks might might get from the report that that would help them be more productive and more efficient in their R and D. Yeah, yeah. So I've alluded to these practices, portfolio management, yep. and uh, and having the right capabilities. There, there's a couple more. If you look at the way devices are being uh, developed, I think it's a very stage gate approach, and it and it has to be for uh, for quality assurance and regulatory compliance. But within the stage gates uh, or in between the stage gates, uh, really great companies are finding ways to be much more agile, mm-hmm. uh, much more cross functional. And be able to cut down uh, on time. You know, one one anecdote I like is uh, the, the the design history file is is you know often you wait too long to to update it. Whereas uh, really great companies actually make sure it's getting updated in a digital way on an ongoing basis and significantly mm-hmm. cut the amount of time it takes. Uh, so little practices like this add up to quite a bit. And we see these uh, being able to be agile means you could cut up to thirty percent time. Uh, to market. So to your point, that is uh, very top of mind, uh, but also more productivity. So, uh, you know, 20% more productive, meaning you can do, you can do the same or more with, uh, with potentially less, um, you know, le- le- less uh, resources. Did you, did you take a look? I'm curious as to how companies worked effectively with, um, with um, um, outsourced R&D firms, with, with smaller product design firms, were, were, were larger companies leaning more heavily upon, external R&D firms than they and product development firms than they might have been in the past? Are they bringing more of it in-house? Is there a right way or, or a wrong way? Is, is that something you've looked at? We have. Historically, the, the industry, unlike the pharmaceutical industry, for example, that's quite externalized, uh, the medical device industry has been much more developing internally and mm-hmm. sourcing pieces of the, of the device development, but really owning the entire process. I think more and more with some of these devices being digital or software, you, you have to externalize. Uh, you're, you're not going to create the entire technology stack. So mm-hmm. that mean, you can see that in two ways. One way is to bring in a lot of those components from the from the outside, from technology companies, for example. You know, cloud or AI is a, is a perfect example of that. So you don't have to invent it in-house. Uh, but a, a, another practice is to start externalizing more of the um, optimally of the resources. Um, although we are seeing, I think, still leaders for the most part are continuing to own the end-to-end process, but find ways to externalize at the right moment where perhaps there's less IP or uh, you know m- more uh, more of that talent outside of the company. Interesting. Well, let's. There's there's so much to the report we could we could spend a, a couple hours talking about it, but let's let's focus on sort of the the, the later stage uh, area that you you talked about, which was how medtech companies have to change how they engage with their customers with healthcare providers. First, let's sort of set the scene. How do you see the the state of, of hospitals and healthcare workers and and the the clients and customers of medical devices? What what are their lives like right now? Yeah, and I have to say I'm married to a physician, so. <laughs> <laughs> so you I'll, can speak uh, to that. You have a, you have a we speak of one in that regard. That's right. Something we speak about a lot. Uh, but no, ultimately, it's you know the same pressure is being felt uh, at the at the providers, and uh, you know the, there's a lot of talk about burnout. 
Uh, there's a lot of staff shortage, uh, and so therefore you also have to do more with uh, with less. And uh, we're also seeing HCPs, uh, healthcare providers, be increasingly, uh, you know, open to interacting in a digital way, uh, and that can be uh, on the commercial side, but also even using more and more digital devices that, that can help them become more productive. So that that's sort of the, the, the stage there where there's also a, a you know openness. And to some extent, we also see they, they do uh, prefer it. So we have a survey that looks at how to interact with HCPs. And we were surprised post-COVID, still now HCPs, would, two-thirds of them would prefer to interact with their sales rep by email over in person. Uh, so that, that's certainly a trend that's here to stay. Interesting. So we had the news recently, and I don't know if you tracked it or not, but Avail Med Systems had a, a set up had a system that allowed for medical device companies to engage digitally with physicians. Uh, unfortunately, they ran into some 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 de- the, te- the details of which I'm still not sure. But there was a financing challenge; they weren't able to raise money to move forward. And there was a larger question, I think, as to how uh, uh, how how ready physicians are physicians to really have a true kind of digital connection to metal device companies, whether they still want to have the sales rep in the room with them, whether they're ready to sort of use digital tools like they they they, they could to, to make things more efficient for the system as a whole. Uh, how do you view where we are in that regard? Are, are we at a point where hospitals and, and surgeons are ready for a more digital connection? Or is that something that you think is going to have to come from the metal device side and, and, and maybe they need to gradually push for that? So the keyword here is omnichannel, which I'm mm-hmm. sure you've heard, but that is that is truly what we see in the in the data. It, it is still the case that you do need to interact in person at key moments of the journey. Uh, for example, if you try the device, or you know when it, you, when you're getting much closer to uh, uh, to buying the device, or or maybe post sales when you, you do need uh, you know often the, the the rep in in the room. However, what we're seeing more and more is that these healthcare providers are demanding to interact the way they would interact with their airline company hmm. uh, and, and, and be able to actually, you know, whatever was said in person should actually be um, uh, there when they call their service rep uh, and should also be there when they log into the website. And so that, that behavior is the one that we're seeing increasingly change. Uh, but it does put more pressure because that means you have to have multiple channels as opposed to a, a single channel and know how to pass information between one channel to the other. Interesting. So last question. So just looking forward, we talked about sort of how metal device companies can change things in the early part of the process and designing new devices and how they, they might want to look at changing how they engage with, with customers going forward and include more channels, including a digital channels. How, how do medical devices do, do you see metal device companies taking a different form over the next five years or so? Do you, do you see some sort of evolutionary uh, change in, in, in how they're structured? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think fundamentally, I would say no. The device companies, at its core, if you are selling a device, uh, you know, a hardware, it, it, it ultimately the, the the model will continue to be the same. Meaning, you you are going to be much more uh, in in person based. However, uh, the more you introduce uh, software in the device, or the more you have unregulated software around the device, I think the more then you have an opportunity to act like a digital native. And so I, I actually think there's going to be uh, really two types of companies within a medical device, two speed, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the, the the faster speed one will be a software company. And, you know, we like to say that the industry should go really from med to tech. 
uh, and embracing what it means to be a digital native. Uh, and if you are selling a piece of software around a device, you know, do you really need to be in person? Can you start borrowing some best practices from the software industry, including how you sell, uh, you know, software as a as a service? Uh, and that re- requires a lot of different capabilities. So uh, the transition will take some time mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, we do need to import that talent in the industry. But we are seeing some companies make that transition uh, faster than others, and and you know their stock price are are rewarded to some extent. So there there's definitely a, a you know an incentive for that that to happen. But ultimately, the the core of it will still remain. You know, we're still a, a device driven company, and and you know that 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 will obviously continue to you know add these years to to life expectancy. Well, well, lots to think about. Once again, the name of the report is MedTech Pulse: uh, Thriving in the Next Decade. You can find it at McKinsey.com. And uh, thank you, Delphine Zakia, for for joining us and for uh, for giving the giving us the highlights of the report. Absolutely, thank you very much. All right, thanks again to Delphine Zerkia for joining us on the podcast. Now, I'd like to bring in the conversation that I had with Fred Kisravi, the CEO of Imperative Care. Once again, this was one of our keynote conversations at Device Talks West. Enjoy. Are we on, Fred? They don't want to hear me, so I hope that works. I, I think it's on. Okay, can good. you guys yep. hear me? You're great. All right. Well, welcome to the uh, welcome to the conference. Thank you, and Thank you Tom. I uh, I wanted to. Uh, I just mentioned this to Tom uh, before we picked up the mics. Uh, Tom's done done an amazing job uh, with this uh, meeting. I mean, the the work, the lead up to it, all of the energy that you've put into it. It's definitely something to watch. I. Uh, uh, you've been creating this anticipation with us, but I think you've been creating it with the whole device community. So, Thank congratulations. You. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I've, somewhere along the line, I, I lost the fear of making a fool of myself, and it's been quite, <laughs> quite liberating. So It's good to have some energy to go with that. <laughs> with that. Yeah. yeah, once you let go of your dignity, the world is, <laughs> the world is filled with opportunities. So. But thanks for those comments. So let's uh, let's focus on you, though. Uh, as always with these conversations, we love to hear the origin story. Uh, yours is amazing. Uh, I know you're on another podcast where your origin story pretty much took up the whole podcast because you had so many great stories. And while I would love to have you back tomorrow, I'm guessing you're busy. So we'll yes. we'll try to uh, limit the first five or ten minutes to your story as how you entered medtech, and then we really want to drill down on what you're uh, what you're doing at Imperative Care. So what was it about that? What was it about the medtech industry that that drew you to be part of it? Yeah, uh, I think one of the uh, probably most pivotal events that happened in my life was when I was working with uh, Silco, an interocular lens company in 1986, 1987. Back then there were 4,000 interocular lenses being implanted in the world, basically only in the US. Uh, And a bunch of them were being implanted in Huntington, West Virginia, where I was working for this company that was pioneering interocular lens development, basically. Today there's 25 million of them being implanted uh, worldwide. Um, and I, had, I was developing this, the, the uh, lenses, but I really didn't have any contact with uh, patients. And I eventually ended up getting on a plane out of Huntington, um, and, and I sat next to a woman who seemed really old to me at the time. She was probably in her mid-40s. <laughs> I was in my... <laughs> I was in my mid-20s, 
And uh, she was very chatty, and she uh, literally, even though her seat in between us was uh, empty, she almost put her hand on my knees and said, hey, do you know what just happened to me? And I said, what? She goes, uh, two weeks ago I was blind, and now I can see. And I said, oh, that's interesting. She goes, they did a surgery on me, they put these lenses, they took my cataract out, and put these lenses in, and uh, now I can see. And I, and I realized that she has the technology that I've been working on, and I never actually had an interaction with a patient. So this is happening by accident on, on this plane ride. And I never really told her that I'm the guy who's one of the guys who's actually making that lens, because I thought it's going to change the course of the conversations. So she continued, and, and telling me how exciting it is. And then she says, do you know what's really exciting about it? I said, no, just being blind and now you can see is not enough. She goes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> she goes uh, you know, I could not have taken this flight by myself to Atlanta to see my grandchildren. Wow. Uh, and, and the fact that I have these lenses, I can actually do this independently on my own. And at, at that moment, really, I sat there and I said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And, and that's what I've been doing for the rest of my life, Wow! basically. That's, that's a good, good origin story. Yeah. So how did you get from that point to, what was in between that point and your becoming fully involved in the medical device industry? Did you already have a biomedical engineering degree? Did you get one? What was, what was the I, next step you took? Yeah, so I, I went to school in Tennessee, to Tennessee Tech. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a refugee from, the Iran Revolution, basically, I came to the U.S. in 1978 and uh, uh, got the best education that I, I could have ever gotten, basically. For me, I, I wasn't taking it for granted. And education is a place where there's freedom to learn what you want to learn, as opposed to uh, a central government uh, pushing the education into you, basically, the education that they want to push into you. For me, it was uh, transformative. Mm -hmm. So I, I basically... Uh, got all of the elixir out of the opportunity to have an education. My other option would have been to go back to home and, and be part of a million people who died in a, in a war between Iran and Iraq, basically. Um, and so uh, it, it, was, it was a tremendous uh, uh, opportunity for me to, to be here. And I actually really uh, understood what freedom is like. Mm -hmm. Freedom to think, freedom to uh, decide to do what you want to do, as opposed to it's being prescribed for you. Does that appreciation ever diminish? Has never diminished, yeah. no. Never. It's a good thing to remember, for sure. Yeah. So, from, from that job in West Virginia, did you say, did you pack up your car and I'm heading to Menlo Park? And you no. <laughs> I'm going to no. go start me some med tech company? <laughs> no, so the next stop and was... I didn't mean that as a weird West Virginia yeah. accent. I was kind of going for a Beverly Hillbillies kind of thing, but anyway. Yeah, I, I'm not going to tell you the story of my wife never moved up with me to West Virginia. <laughs> that's, that's a whole different thing. Um, but I ended up in Seattle. Uh, Cooper Vision bought Silco. Okay. Silco was a startup company. I went into the headquarters. Uh, became the engineering leader for the, uh, all of the IOL programs that uh, they were developing. And then I got recruited by Advanced Cardiovascular Systems in Santa Clara oh. uh, in 1989. Uh, Amr Salahia is here. 
uh, we, we worked together 30 some years ago and we've been working together uh, <clears throat> all along, if you will, uh, from the ACS days. And ended up actually being lucky enough, uh, by the way, uh, my story has a lot of luck built into it. It's, it's never been uh, set up or designed to actually go in the direction that it's gone. So it's never been in intentional or uh, volitional, so to speak, the experiences that I've had. Um, I ended up actually uh, getting involved in a program within uh, advanced cardiovascular systems, which was really more of a sideline program. It was an implantable stent technology at a time that uh, only disposable products were available for cardiovascular business, mm -hmm. balloons, guide wires, uh, guide catheters. And this side project was actually, had started with a, uh, uh, through an extraordinary uh, clinician, visionary, uh, Professor Ulrich Sigvart, who uh, actually implanted the first coronary stent in, in, in a human in 1986, and uh, declared that within 10 years, uh, most of, or more than 60% of angioplasty is gonna be done with stents. And everybody laughed at him and said, there's no way people are gonna put implants in people's hearts. Exactly 10 years later, there were more than 75, 80% of coronary artery disease was wow. being, being treated with stents. So he was the visionary of all visionaries, and I was lucky enough to work with him and another extraordinary engineer who we're working together right now at Imperative Care, Lilip Lau, who really developed a stent platform. I was the business unit manager at ACS. They brought me from the implantable device industry because of my uh, IOL experience to develop this implantable group basically within uh, a disposable product company. Uh, Lilip Lau was the uh, Uber engineer that developed the technology, which really became the platform for all uh, coronary stents that are being used today to the tune of about five million of them, basically. About $25 billion of uh, litigations uh, and settlements that in, in the stent space uh, based on the little plough technology, basically. I was a co-inventor with him and a group of people and Ulrich Sigvart who actually developed that technology. Mm -hmm. So that's what brought me to the Bay Area. And then uh, after that, it was a startup in uh, Boston uh, with uh, Mark mm -hmm. Levin, uh, who, actually uh, uh, now is the uh, managing partner and founder of uh, Third Rock. Third Rock yep. uh, Mark was an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, person to look up to. Was he with Mayfield at the time? Was that he was with Mayfield, yeah. yes. He was with Mayfield Funds. And they had started a company in Boston and Cambridge, actually. Uh, and I walked into the company. Uh, there were like three people sitting there uh, behind a bunch of computers, basically. Um, and decided to actually join them. I, I felt like this would be a good journey to, to go learn from someone like Mark Levin uh, as to what it, what it takes to actually uh, start a company. Um, the, all the pain and suffering that mm -hmm. goes into the excitements, of course, also, but all the pain and suffering. And, and how does somebody like a Mark Levin handle it? And, uh, he was extraordinary. I mean, somebody I still look up to and, and made a big impression on me as to what hard work, uh, uh, being resolute in, in the mission that you're trying to go uh, after, focus on trying to solve a problem as opposed to just developing a technology, looking for a problem, if you will. Um, 
those are all the things that I actually learned from Mark Levin. Can everyone in, start in that a, experience? Can everyone start a company and succeed, or does it take a certain type of person? Good question. Uh, I think everybody can start a company, mm -hmm. but I think we all need to surround ourselves with people who are better than us mm -hmm. in, in things that we're not good at, uh, as opposed to trying to both conduct the orchestra and play every instrument, mm -hmm. if you will. So it's not a one person carry the ball over the line kind it's of thing? Not. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. So you kept starting companies. What was it about the process? And we can highlight one or two of your, but let's choose one of you. I don't want you to pick one of your favorite child, but let's, let's take a particular illustrative example of, of a successful startup and maybe a lesson learned from it. And then I do want to get into imperative care. And, and, I, and I should have said at the start, uh, when I, Fred and I talked a couple of weeks ago, I said, do you want to do Q&A? And he said, of course. So we'll have Q&A at the end. So uh, I'll save the last 10 minutes for you folks. I hope you use them. Uh, so please come up with some questions and we'll get a mic. Chris, if you could, or someone, if you could make sure you get a handheld. And uh, we'll, we are recording this session, I should have said that too. Uh, so we'll get the mic so we can hear your question as well. So what was, I gave you enough time to think of a favorite. Sure. What was your, well, what let, was me, let me actually give you a broader sense. Sure. Uh, because uh, if you fast forward from Focal in Cambridge, uh, I came back to the Bay Area and I started a company in 1995 focusing on carotid stenting. Uh, really, novel idea at the time. And uh, I think back then maybe there were five or six companies in the Bay Area that were venture-backed. There, no, wow. there, there was no ecosystem, uh, med-tech ecosystem of investors. There were, by and large, basically semiconductor and computer folks, so to speak, that were thinking about actually coming into, uh, into med-tech. And we had gone through the previous five years of me coming back to the Bay Area, we'd gone through a period where when Medtech was basically at the early stage of burgeoning, companies like ACS and CPI and Simed and, and what have you, uh, there were a number of them that were actually developing uh, pioneering technologies. Uh, the pharmaceutical companies uh, kind of felt like oh, these guys are making products for the hospitals, we're selling products to the hospitals, and so we're gonna basically take them over. So a number of these startup, uh, the startups of the early 90s in MedTech got acquired by, uh, by larger companies, mm -hmm. by, by larger pharmaceuticals. Uh, when the Bjork Shiley heart valve uh, debacle happened, uh, there were heart valves that actually had cracks in them that after implantation, you could actually see it on, on fluoro, that these valves are cracked. And pharmaceutical companies, when they sell a drug, you have to do a million patients to understand whether it's actually causing an injury or not. And, and this is technology that they had acquired where you could actually see the cracks of the, uh, of the valve mm -hmm. in, uh, on fluoro. And, and so um, that, that became a pivotal point that all pharma companies basically divested out of medical devices. They decided this is not for us, this is a whole different ball game from a regulatory, from a quality, from how you, how you basically uh, uh, 
work with technology, if you will. Um, and so uh, that basically gave rise to companies like Guidant mm -hmm. and Boston Scientific. And there's a number of companies that basically grew out of that uh, evolution. Um, and, and so that was MedTech. And there was no uh, venture capital, basically. But all of these companies had become actually uh, ACS Guidant and, and a number of other ones. They had become larger companies where, from an innovation standpoint, they needed innovation from the outside. And there was a small group of uh, entrepreneurs who had actually braved the trail, so to speak, mm -hmm. to start these companies. And, and I, I started one in 1995 also, uh, completely not knowing what the heck I'm getting myself into. But I, uh, I started one, and uh, maybe it, it actually, for me, it always underscores if you think something's impossible, you don't end up doing it. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of lucky enough to not be so smart to understand that it's, it's not impossible, uh, if you will. So started the company. It didn't do so well. Uh, it almost fell apart. Uh, I learned a lot. I, that, that became another pivot in my life. And uh, we were able to kind of put Humpty Dumpty back together again, turn it into a product success, if you will. Um, but that actually gave rise, th that experience and the woman uh, in, on the flight from West Virginia uh, and, and the thinking that uh, I want to do this for the rest of my life, I, we, we then started looking at planning on how do we create uh, a setup where we can actually contribute to medical device innovation. And, and through that, we started INCEPT, my mm -hmm. partner, Amar Sahani, and myself. East Coast, West Coast, I'm on the West Coast, he's on the East Coast. And uh, on, on each of the coasts, we have four or five companies that, that we are managing with extraordinary leadership, basically, in, in each one of those companies. Uh, and we each run one of them. So Omar runs one of them, I run one of them here, and the one that I run is imperative care. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what uh, you were interested in uh, kind of getting to, so. Uh, I, I do, I do want to yeah. dig into that. I did want to sort of understand what you learned from that company nearly falling apart and kind of getting stitched back together. Um, did you, in doing so, did you correct something that was going wrong? Did you? I think there was the fundamental thing that was wrong was that I actually thought it was about me. Okay. Yeah, and I learned that uh, it, it's, it can't be about the person who's doing it or running it. If it ends up being about the person who's doing it and running it, that uh, kind of, I think the probability of failure goes up because you're listening to a lot of people. You're trying to kind of uh, get, uh, please your investors, mm -hmm. please your family, please your employees, please your management, and, and please the doctors, uh, instead of actually being focused on doing the right thing and having a North Star that, that you can actually follow. And so it was painful, it was mm -hmm. a really painful experience. And uh, um, I, we were able to, like I said, uh, put it back together again. I realized that I was the problem, so I literally, fired myself from the board <laughs> with, the, with the consent of the investors. And uh, we brought in John Moroni, who uh, 
uh, ran the company, I learned a ton from John about uh, what leadership is all about. I always, being an engineer, I always thought leadership is you got to be in everything. You got to be in engineering, in, in finance, in, in everything that's going on in the company. And John basically taught me that uh, as, a, as a leader, you can't spend all of your time in the business, you got to be spending time on the business, mm. right? That that's how you that's how you grow a business and 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 move it forward. You got to have people that you trust, right? And let them do what they need to do and make sure there's a, there's an accountability process, basically. But the CEO needs to be on the business more than in the business. That's really good advice. Yeah. Well, let's talk about imperative because that was uh, another part of the prep call that I really enjoyed. Where. Let's get into its origin. It was a it was a, a a technical idea that came to you that you didn't see was was right for the time. So go, go into sort of the the very first conversation that ultimately led to the creation of Imperative Care. So Imperative Care uh, has roots that goes back to probably 20 years ago. Uh, Nick Hopkins, uh, who's uh, another one of my uh, mentors and somebody that I seriously look up to in, in so many different ways, not just clinically, but as, as uh, I look up to him for life as opposed to just business, which is quite special. Uh, Nick has been actually uh, urging me to actually do something in stroke for probably 10 years before imperative care started. And uh, in 2015, there was a confluence of a number of things. Technology improved, imaging improved, that you could actually tell whether a uh, um, kind of ischemic stroke technology actually works or it doesn't work, meaning uh, the non-responders wouldn't be in the denominator of the uh, equation. As long as the non, because when the non-responders are in the denominator of the equation, the rate of success really goes down. And if you have a procedure that succeeds 30, 40% of the time, that's really not a procedure. It's gotta be 70, 80, 90% of the time. That, that's when it becomes a procedure. And as long as the non-responders to a therapy end up being in the equation, because you can't tell the responders from the non-responders, then you really don't have a therapy. And I think 2015, uh, it, it really became the confluence of a point where it, it seemed like we could actually develop technologies where we can bring uh, the, the uh, product response to patients, basically, uh, to about 80, 90%. And so that, that really became the right time to actually do this. Um, Nick was the real visionary behind the, uh, the vision of imperative care. Mm -hmm. um, I've always followed the, uh, I'm not one of those uh, smart engineers who can actually think of great technologies. Uh, I'm always following clinical lead and clinical direction. Um, always really interested in solving a problem and working backwards and developing a technology portfolio that solves a clinical problem, basically. And so being tapping into clinical focus has always been really important to me. So the vision of imperative care was set by uh, Nick Hopkins, where his belief was that we need to elevate stroke care. Uh, and we elevate it first by uh, making the procedure simpler and faster, because for an ischemic stroke procedure, if it takes about an hour and a half, 
your, the patients actually end up suffering from that length of ischemia, basically. The number of uh, neurons are ending up in billions that, that are lost over that period of time, if you will, and, and infarct in the brain, and uh, outcomes basically diminish uh, if, if the procedure is too long. So uh, his belief was that this procedure really, with the right technologies, need to be able to be done in about 10 minutes, hmm. from stick to revascularization in 10 minutes. Um, and the way he believed that we need to do this is actually elevate access. So when we were coming into uh, this space, basically, uh, the standard procedure is that you park an access device in the carotid artery, uh, which is a large, uh, more a stiffer device, so to speak, because it's access from the groin to the carotid artery. And then through that, you have a more trackable, smaller, flexible device that goes all the way into the, uh, into the brain, basically going through 360 loops and, and what have you. But if you have to then do one pass of getting the clot out, but you haven't gotten all of it out, and you have to go back, every one of those exchanges through that access end up taking about 15 to 20 minutes. Hmm. So procedure, if it's three passes to completely clear the brain, you're essentially taking about an hour with, with three exchanges. But Nick's vision was that if you actually take the access and take it all the way to the clot, then taking care of that clot is a layup then going back and forth is not gonna take that long. Hmm. And in fact, by having the largest device, the largest lumen, all the way close to the clot, you can actually aspirate from that large lumen and do it in one pass. And so today, with the Zoom stroke solution, I think you had a panel this morning mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, of our leadership, which is an extraordinary group of people to be with. Um, <clears throat> every one of them in their own rights have been uh, success stories in the med tech space. And they've chosen to actually come do this. Uh, um, Amr Salahi and I worked with an extraordinary uh, cardiologist by the name of Don Baim, who is uh, fundamental in, in the way the cardiovascular business has evolved. He's, he's passed now. Uh, but Don, when he actually went to uh, Boston Scientific and became the chief medical officer there, and I asked him, I said, Don, how are things going? He was basically the uh, chief of cardiology at Harvard, uh, if you will. Um, and, and when I asked him how, how that's going, Don basically said something that I feel today at Imperative Care is that he said, Fred, I feel like I've actually worked my entire career to one day be able to come do something like this. Wow. And I think our leadership, if you look at the success that they've had and, and they're here, uh, building this uh, very intentional, so while my life has been accidental basically, the work that we're doing at Imperative Care is very much built for purpose, it's very much intentional. And all of these leaders have actually come, done, done everything in their lives to be able to do something like this one day. I mean, what's impressed me with learning about imperative care is just the conversation doesn't end with the discussion of the device, that there's, your, your mission is broader and you, and you alluded to the aiding stroke patients. Was that the mission from this very start or did imperative care start off as a device company and then you saw a need for some of the other things we'll talk about and it's grown into that or, or was the, that fuller mission baked in from the start? 
Yeah, uh, I'll tell you a little bit of a story. Sure. I think it ties back to Nick Hopkins. So uh, when I was talking to Nick Hopkins about starting imperative care, he was getting treated for cancer at, uh, at the Mayo Clinic. I'm a cancer survivor, he's a great friend, and so I went to visit him, not to start a company, by the way, I went to visit him to commiserate with a friend, uh, with a fellow cancer survivor, hopefully. Um, and um, at that meeting, he, uh, I stayed there for about a day and a half. He uh, gave me like 15 minutes rundown of all of his kind of stroke, uh, of his cancer treatment. Boom, 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 as if he was giving grand rounds. And then he wanted to talk about stroke. That's all he wanted to talk about. And uh, I was completely baffled by that, because I really, as a cancer survivor, I had gone to commiserate with, with a friend. And he didn't want to have any of it. He just wanted to talk about cancer. We started at 10 o'clock in the morning at a breakfast table, and I think we got up at like about six o'clock in the afternoon from that table, and we talked about uh, stroke that entire day. Mm -hmm. And the next day that I left uh, Rochester to head back to Minneapolis, um, I, I told Nick, I said, my answer is still no, but I'm going to go think about it, and maybe it turns into a maybe. Mm -hmm. Right, and I thought about it quite a bit on the ride back to Minneapolis, and then three months later, we actually ended up having a, a full-day conference with Nick and uh, three of his protégés, Dr. Jay Mako, Dr. Adnan Siddiqui, and Dr. Cole Turk, who we brought to the table. I had a team with me of uh, Yi Yang, who's our chief technology officer, and Gerard von Hoffman, who's now with us as our chief patent counsel at Imperative Care. Mm -hmm. uh, we went to that meeting at the Yale Club, and the vision that was actually outlined for uh, Imperative Care was actually uh, outlined at that meeting. Okay. David Holmes, by the way, from uh, Mayo Clinic joined us as well for that conversation. And what, the one thing that I actually let this team know, because th these guys were the best of the best in uh, ischemic stroke, in uh, hemorrhagic stroke, and th there were, everybody was at the, at the top of their game. Um, I had actually thought about it for a while, basically. I, I, I'd been looking at it from a pattern recognition for about 20 years, and from meeting Nick in Rochester, and then uh, those two, three months before we had that meeting at the Yale Club, um, I thought quite a bit about what I want to do, mm -hmm. right? And, and I realized that I'm probably not going to get excited to jump out of bed every morning going and making a device. And so uh, I felt like the only way that I can actually do this, that I could be excited about this, is really changing and make, making a bigger impact on, on the space and on, uh, on the technology. Almost like create recreate ACS. ACS was a very special place that we, we grew up in. And the, the, the question for me was, can that be recreated? A company that is ignited by clinical view, uh, developed and growing with good people doing great things, basically. And I can be every day uh, surrounded by the people that I'm surrounded with to feel insecure about myself. And, and, and what I do. Is that, is that recreatable? And 
my perspective was that with Nick, and, and we talked about this at, at this meeting, which really became the cornerstone of what the vision, the, the purposeful vision about imperative care was, was that I realized that the first technology for pulling clot out of someone's brain was developed in 2003. Company, uh, technology called Mercy. Um, when we were entering this space, it was 2016. Today, 2023, 20 years later, after the Mercy device, there's one out of five patients in the United States that gets this most powerful treatment in medicine ever. Acute life and death. One out of five patients get it, 20% of the US population. So I sat down and I started thinking about it. I said, if it's taken 20 years to get to 20%, if, we're gonna get, if we want to get to 80%, uh, if you kind of extrapolate that, and, and the rate of innovation, by the way, has been really high. At that rate, it's going to be 2080 before 80% of the US population gets this technology. And so making the catheters, keep making the catheters better, mm. eventually comes to an asymptotic place where the catheter works. We, we developed it. We, we have the Zoom system. Right. Today, more than 60% of the procedures are done uh, uh, basically TIKI-3, meaning full revascularization, at under 10 minutes. We can make it better. Mm -hmm. We are going to make it better. We're going to continue making the technology better. But making the catheters better is not going to make it available to more patients. So the way to make it available to more patients is to bring digital health and automation and robotics to it. If patients who don't get to the treatment, you can create detection devices, basically. Uh, as you know, uh, angina is a detection system for uh, heart attacks, but there is no detection system for stroke. So developing wearable detection technologies that gets patients uh, to the right treatment, basically, mm -hmm. not end up in the wrong hospitals. There are 900 cath labs in the United States that actually perform these procedures. There are 6,000 cath labs in the United States. And so you got to end up in the right hospital. If you end up in the wrong hospital, you're screwed, right? And uh, if you're in a rural hospital, you're also relatively screwed, mm -hmm. right? Because it's like you got to get put on a helicopter and, and taken to the hospital, or the physician has to basically drive to you to actually do the procedure. So digital health for us was getting the patients to the right treatment, and robotics, which is the technology we're working on at Telos, which is remote intervention. We feel that it's the best use case for medical robotics, basically. Mm -hmm. Remote intervention for uh, stroke treatment. Um, and, and that technology is supposed to take where, wherever uh, a stroke specialist, neurologist is not available. You could put a robot in those cat labs, right? The cat lab is there, the capital equipment is there. Uh, there's a cardiologist that is actually on call to do STEMI. They don't have to do the procedure. The robot does the procedure and the physician at a remote facility at a stroke center basically drives the robot. Isn't that, I mean, that's a complex technology to be able to perform those remotely. Why not leave that to a company that's focused exclusively on surgical robotics and you focus exclusively on your devices and kind of go the way that 
the, 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 the industry has gone? Very good question. Um, fundamentally, because uh, interventional robotics is not surgical robotics. Mm -hmm. It's not just cutting things and sewing things and, and what have you. It's about uh, basically linear coaxial motion. It's about fluidics. It's about uh, catheters of the future. You can't really uh, use catheters of today for a technology that that's going to be in the marketplace in 2028. Mm -hmm. You have to really uh, look at, bring all of those three pillars to the table. And I think we are the only company, I feel like, in the world that can actually do that. So does this go, or this is sort of summing up a few of the conversations we've had today where MedTech, you know, we, we companies say that they're patient-centric because they're developing devices for patients uh, to, to help patients. But there seems to be a, a different energy spirit where companies are taking, trying to take a look at the entire spectrum of the patient experience. Um, is this the direction that MedTech med is going to go more broadly? Do we see MedTech companies of the future five years from now sort of, again, those that can, taking that, that broader, more holistic look at things? Or is imperative care an outlier? I don't think imperative care, sh imperative care is an outlier, mm -hmm. but it shouldn't be an outlier, is, is my sense. And I don't want to give an, I, I have a dream speech, but um, <laughs> I, I do have a dream that we go to a place where uh, med tech, medicine in general, uh, is going to become something that f focuses more on the patient as opposed to their disease. I think there's too much disease focus. There's too much hammer and nail is going on. Stroke is one of those uh, diseases that really requires that continuum of care uh, uh, type of energy and connected care uh, innovations, basically. Otherwise, the patients are going from silo to silo, and, and they're confused at every silo. Like mm -hmm. from, the amb from home to ambulance to getting treated and then going to a rehab center. It's th this is why there's so many readmissions of stroke patients. Most of the readmissions, by the way, for stroke survivors is about uh, hip fractures and urinary tract infection because they're not following the right approach. I mean, these are low-hanging fruits to try to present them. And, and a patient who actually has uh, a stroke patient who gets readmitted to, to the hospital has a 60% higher chance of actually getting another stroke and, and dying from it. Low-hanging fruit, mm -hmm. UTI and hip fractures. If you prevent those, you're going to save a lot of lives. And this is why we have Can Do Health. This is why we have actually created a platform that uh, actually stays with the patients and follows the patients. And makes them feel like they're not alone. Because you, you do, it's, 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 being a stroke survivor is a very isolating uh, business. You become very isolated. I, I've learned that uh, along the way, and it's, uh, <clears throat> my, my throat gets full as I think about it, the number of stroke, stroke survivors that, that I've seen. Uh, one of the things that they basically told myself and, and Kirsten Carroll in this process, is nothing about us without us, because nobody understands what we go through. We, we, they get isolated. Mm -hmm. They're, they're no, no longer, and we don't and hear about them anymore, because uh, who wants to deal with a stroke survivor at a party? 
And it happens right? in a day, in a moment. It goes yeah. from one moment to the... It, yeah, to and, and I think to realize that they're not alone, to realize that there's a community that's reeling with this, to realize that there's basic things that you could do for these guys to not get UTIs and, and hip fractures and, and not get readmitted to the hospital, literally increases, and, and we're demonstrating that, that it can do. It, it, it basically improves modified Rankin scores from two to three to zero to one. In, uh, I, I think I may be misquoting this, but maybe in 80% of the cases wow. that, that go through this program. I'm going to ask one more question, and if anyone has a question from the audience, Sean has the microphone. You, re you referenced the, the, in the 90s the, I'm sorry, I forget the name, but the physician who, who predicted Ulrich the, 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 the use of coronary stents and people laughing at him. Do you feel people are laughing at you or imperative care? How, how are you getting received by the industry? Because it's a, it's a Hail Mary pass that you're throwing. And, or do people say, good for you, like way to lead? Yeah. I think if people are not laughing at you a little bit, you're probably not trying hard enough, right? I mean, it's just... Amen, yes. Yeah, <laughs> naturally. Because it is, uh, what we're doing is different. I mean, it's, instead of taking, uh, uh, I was just talking to Daniel Hawkins, who's in, in the audience. Um, if you're taking five boulders up the hill, um, the probability of failure goes up by quite a bit. Right? If you're taking one boulder up the hill, the focus really makes you achieve what you're doing with, with a higher probability. And we're taking five boulders up the hill. It, uh, in, I would say in uh, conventional thinking about MedTech, it doesn't make sense. Uh, and that's why I'm calling it MedTech 3.0, mm -hmm. uh, where we're essentially creating a hyper-growth revenue company in stroke and vascular, but we're also making significant investments into the back half of the decade and the next decade so that there is durability and continuity of that growth. I wish I had talked to you before I came up with the title for the talk, because MedTech 3.0 is, much, oh, is much better than <laughs> that. <laughs> Any questions from, uh, from folks in the audience? We'll get a few minutes and then we'll have, uh, have some time together outside. Okay, good, more for me. Um, are, are you, do you, feel, do you feel as if this is, I mean, if, if the people are laughing at you silently, do you, do, I opened this up and we opened up the day kind of again, there seems to be a, a, a different element of this conversation in med tech where people are, I think, I think we've always, again, said we're patient centric, but I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm taking our conversation and projecting it onto others, but do you, do you feel like there's some, some kind of change happening in how medtech companies will be formed in the future um, with, again, with more patient engagement? Uh, certainly we're talking more about health equity, we're talking about getting devices to the people who need it the most. I, I think that's all fantastic that we're having those conversations, but are we gonna see talk turn into to action and evolution of this industry? I'm going to say something. I, I don't mean to be kind of sexist or raise the ire of half of the population here. Um, but I really do think that for medicine to shift into treating the patients as opposed to treating the disease, 
We need more women in uh, medicine. We need more women in leadership in companies that are treating technologies for medicine. Um, I'm not saying 100%, no. but I think we, we're woefully behind. Um, and, and I believe that women in medicine and women in leadership in these companies will shift the uh, will shift medicine to focusing on the patient as opposed to the disease. We're guys. We're, we're all kind of hammer and nail people. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And yeah. <laughs> I think. How can I ask another question? <laughs> I'm dropping the mic. I'm dropping the mic, and we'll we'll go have some time outside. So th thank you, Fred Krasavi, for sharing your thank story you. today. Thank you, guys. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Once again, please like, follow, and or subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network. You'll receive future episodes of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast of our corporate podcasts, including Striker Talks, Intuitive Talks, Abbott Talks, Boston Scientific Talks. We have more and more coming, including just released this week, AI Meets Life Sci. So uh, you can catch season one of AI Meets Life Sci on the Device Talks Podcast Network, but make sure you look for the AI Meets Life Sci podcast channel so you can subscribe directly to that. Please make sure you connect with uh, all of us on LinkedIn. I'm Tom Salemi at Device Talks. You can catch me there. You can catch Chris Newmarker as in a new marker there. And of course, Kayleen Brown, our managing editor of Device Talks, and Brian Bunce, B-U-N-T-Z, on LinkedIn. Connect with us all. Please uh, enjoy the AI Meets Life Side podcast and share it on social media. Share this episode of the Device Talks Weekly podcast as well. And when you do, make sure you tag all of us so we can be part of that conversation. Uh, a little bit of a, a programming note. We will not have a Device Talks Weekly podcast next week for Thanksgiving. We're going to take the week off. But we'll be back, not the week after, but the week after that. But we'll have two podcasts coming out your way the week after Thanksgiving, including another new podcast uh, led by our managing editor, Kayleen Brown. So lots going on here at Device Talks Podcast Land. Great to have you as part of it. And I uh, hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving if you're in the U.S. and you celebrate. Hope you enjoy some uh, warm time with uh, family and friends, and uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks on the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Mm -hmm.